Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Let's turn back in our Bibles to the passage we've read together this evening in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. And uh, as you've already heard, the series on John 1, 19 to 2, 11, uh, I've called a week in the life, that is a week in the life of the Lord Jesus. And all this, I think, Uh, I hope will become clear, as will also the theme for this evening, uh, which is the day before he came, which if you belong to my generation, I know sounds like an ABBA song, uh, but uh, isn't actually. The ABBA fans have just revealed themselves, obviously. So John chapter 1 and verses 19 to 28 uh, this evening. The one thing that should be clear is this is not a series on John's gospel, because series on John's gospel usually begin at John chapter 1 verse 1. So we're taking a very limited view of this section in John's gospel, but since this is the beginning of a little series, I want to tiptoe up onto this particular passage and to do so in a kind of A, B, and C way. Uh, My A is to approach these verses, and indeed to approach this series, in the context of John's gospel as a whole. Uh, One of the most obvious things about John's gospel is it's different from the first three gospels. They are often referred to as the synoptic gospels because they present very similar views of Jesus. And clearly John presents a rather different perspective on Jesus. Uh, One thing I'm personally convinced of is that when John wrote this gospel, he assumed that those who first heard it read to them or were able to make copies of it had access to the other three Gospels. Um, And if you read John with some care, you'll notice he alludes to certain occasions in the ministry of Jesus, but doesn't tell you what is really most obvious about those occasions. For example, strictly speaking, if you had only this section in John's Gospel, you wouldn't know that John the Baptist actually baptized Jesus. The text doesn't tell you that. And you would know nothing about the temptations of Jesus. And these are such enormous moments in redemptive history that it would be blameworthy of John if he failed to mention them. And so I think we can safely assume John understands that his readers are already familiar with the details of the other three Gospels or at least of one of them. And so he approaches the story of Jesus' ministry from a rather different perspective. Um, I've always loved what John Calvin says about John's gospel. 
He says the difference between John's gospel and the other gospels is that the other gospels show us Christ's body, but John shows us Christ's soul. John shows us Christ's soul. I think perhaps another way to look at John is to think of his gospel as though it were a gallery of Rembrandt paintings. And indeed, Rembrandt is perhaps a good illustration here. You can know almost nothing about art and yet stand in front of a Rembrandt painting full of admiration, full of questions about its significance, noticing increasingly little details that seem to have a meaning. Or on the other hand, you could be someone like Simon Shaman, write a thousand pages on Rembrandt's art and realize you still have not got to the bottom of it. And John's gospel is like this. I was thinking earlier on in the service. I was convicted of my need of Christ at 14 through John chapter 5, converted of my uh, sin and brought to Christ through John chapter 8, and 60 years later, I'm still trying to get to the bottom of it. So it's it's a gallery of magnificent pictures of our Lord Jesus Christ and his ministry and like great paintings there are layers to its significance but actually it's like a Rembrandt painting I think in another respect and that is one of the things Rembrandt's famous for as some of you know much better than I do is his amazing use of light and dark remember going into an art gallery with a series of Rembrandt paintings early in the morning looking to make sure no one else was in the gallery and going up to one of the paintings to try to work out how the gallery had created such special light effects on the painting that certain aspects of the painting seemed to glow with a sense of brightness and glory. And then, of course, I stood back and thought to myself, what an idiot. I know nothing about art. It was the way Rembrandt was painting the shades and the shadows and the darkness that seem to create the light effect. And this is obviously one of John's great emphasis. He he tells us in the opening words of the gospel that the light has come into the darkness and the darkness has never been able to master the light. And he keeps on returning to this. Nicodemus comes out of the darkness to Jesus, who is the light. Jesus later on gives this great promise that he is the light of the world and those who follow him will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life towards the end of the story. Judas Iscariot, who betrays him, goes out into the darkness of the Jerusalem night. It's a story of conflict between Christ the light and the darkness of the world in which we live. And incidentally, there's another little parallel between John's gospel and Rembrandt's paintings. And that is that, as you probably know, occasionally Rembrandt paints himself into his painting. You may be seen a picture of the now hidden because stolen Rembrandt painting 
of Jesus in the storm of the Sea of Galilee, and there's a little fellow at the back of the boat looking out with a kind of terrified look on his face towards the viewer, saying, perhaps, well, what would you do if you were in my situation? And it's Rembrandt himself. And John has already done this in a very subtle way earlier on in the first chapter when he said the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. It's almost as though he's reaching out of the gospel. The other gospel writers don't quite do it this way. He reaches out of the gospel and brings you into the gospel and He's seeking to evoke a question from within, how did you see his glory? And the rest of the narrative is going to be punctuated by ways in which the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ is made visible in the story of John's gospel. And uh, it's really interesting that right at the very end of the gospel, He actually does something unique in the Gospels. He comes out of the story himself. He's already given us a hint in chapter 1. The reason the Gospel is being written is to bring us to faith. So that all may believe, as he says in verse 7. But right at the end of the Gospel, just in case we hadn't worked it out ourselves... He says, now, these things have been written so that you, you dear reader, may believe that Jesus is the Christ and coming to faith in him, you may have life in his name. And I think he means not only coming to Christ for the first time, coming to faith in Christ, but having seen everything he tells us about Christ, that if we're already Christians, fills us with greater trust in Christ. It's as though he wants to say to us, the Christian life begins with faith in Christ that brings you into his kingdom, but you never depart from faith in Christ. And the way to grow in faith in Christ is when Christ grows marvelously before your eyes. And his whole gospel then is taken up with this, that he wants to put Jesus Christ front and center. And so there are questions that run through the gospel, and really they're already here in the passage that we read together this evening, and we'll, we'll see them again. And the questions are, well, who is Jesus Christ? And what is Jesus Christ like? In a way, those are the two questions every sermon on Jesus is intended to answer. Who is he? But not only who is he in terms of how can I identify him? How can I give him names like Savior or Redeemer or Lord? But what is he actually like? What is it like to know the Lord Jesus? And, of course, John will later tell us in uh, chapter 13 that he was the one who lay at the table at the Last Supper closest to Jesus. 
as they did in these days, intimately lying back near to Jesus, as though he's conscious that since he came to know he was loved by the Lord Jesus, he wants us to know who this Jesus is and to know what he's like so that we know we are loved by him. Well, this is the gospel in general. This is our A. This is, uh, we might say, John's general approach. But then there's a B, and the B is John's description of the beginning of Jesus' ministry. John's gospel has a kind of amazing symmetry to it. Um, It has a prologue, verses 1 to 18 in chapter 1. It has a tiny little epilogue where where he tells us, if if I tried to tell you everything Jesus did, all the books in the world that could possibly be written couldn't be contained in the world. So there's a prologue and there's this tiny little epilogue. And then in the middle, there seem to be like part one and part two. Uh, New Testament scholars often speak about these as the book of the signs, where Jesus does these remarkable miracles. And then from chapter 13 to the end, the book of glory, where we're brought into this kind of intimate portrait of Jesus that was visible only to his closest disciples. And and that symmetry continues in a very interesting way, because the gospel narrative, by and large, ends with a week in the life of Jesus, with which most of us are very familiar. That week begins in chapter 12, verse 1, in Bethany, as Jesus makes his way from Bethany to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, eventually to the cross and to the resurrection on Easter Monday, a week in the life of Jesus. But it also begins with a week in the life of Jesus that probably doesn't seem nearly as obvious to us, but I think John means to make it obvious to us. And since this is what we're going to be looking at, let me simply point you to the little pieces of evidence he gives to us that he is speaking about a single week in the life of Jesus. Beginning in verse 29, the next day. Now, this isn't a lecture in logic, but I think logically the next day means there has been a previous day. So the next day in this narrative is day two. And then if you look down to verse 35, you'll see the expression again. The next day, again, Jesus was standing with two of his disciples. So this is day three. And then again in verse 40, we get an interesting little twist. In verse 39, these two disciples want to come and stay with Jesus, and we're told it was the 10th hour. That's four o'clock in the afternoon. So it's getting dark. And this, I think, is John's indication. This marks the end of another day. So it's the day afterwards, in verse 40, that one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And then in verse 43, yet another day, now day five, 
the next day, and then finally in chapter 2, verse 1, on the third day, by typical biblical inclusive reference, this is the seventh day. So what John is saying to us here at the beginning of the gospel is, look at Jesus in terms of a week of his life, a week of his ministry. Um, Somebody asked me how the week went. Frankly, I can't remember how the week went. I can hardly remember one day from another. I know that doesn't augur well for a sermon series, but it's the fact of the matter. All days kind of may look the same. And here John is saying to us, if we're going to know Jesus, then I want to tell you what he was like in the first week. And then if you hold on with me, I'll tell you what he was like on the last week. Totally different situations, but exactly the same Lord Jesus Christ. And he's really telling us, I think, in these verses, some of the things that we need to look for. And he's given us a hint of this in the prologue in verses 14 following, where he says these essentially three things about the Lord Jesus. Number one, we will see him in his glory. Number two, we will experience him in his fullness. And number three, we will taste him in his grace. In a sense, we might say that is all we ever need to live the Christian life to see Jesus Christ in his glory, to experience his fullness. From his fullness, we have all received. And to be able to taste and to savor the grace and graciousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, if If we were to ask, what is going to make us different in the world as Christians? And surely this would make us different in the world as Christians. In this world, we have seen his glory. In this world, we have tasted his fullness. Everything we need, we find in Christ. And in this world, in all our brokenness, sinfulness, self-recrimination, failure, sense of guilt, we have come to taste and marvelously to savor his grace. And John wants to say to us, I'm just beginning to unfold this to you in the section that follows. So there is the A, the approach to the gospel of Jesus Christ that John has. There's B, the beginnings of Jesus' ministry. And then there's this kind of surprising section that I want to focus down on now, which contains our C, the confession of John the Baptist. And that it is a confession is underscored, isn't it, in verse 20. John is pressed into answering this question, you, who are you? And and that's probably a better way to translate it. You, who do you think you are? He's baptizing. Worse, He's baptizing Jews. Jews were familiar with a small number of Gentiles wanting to come into their community. 
and baptizing themselves, cleansing themselves symbolically in the process. What they were not used to, not least because the prophetic voice had not been heard for many generations, was John the Baptist's summons to repentance and faith to those who already claimed to belong to the covenant people, warning them to flee from the judgment of God to come and to be baptized as a symbol of their turning back, of their repentance, of their seeking the Lord, of their trust in Him, and of their waiting for Him to send a Savior and Redeemer to them. And it's pretty clear in this passage as uh, John begins to unfold this story that it was what our mothers might have called the High Hegians in Jerusalem, probably members of the Sanhedrin, who had heard of this outrageous ministry of John the Baptist and sent some of their own, as we're told, uh, from the Pharisees. That's who John seems to mean in this particular context in verse 19 when he refers to the Jews. Members of the ruling council who were of the strictest sect of the Jewish religion who were outraged at this novelty of telling their own people they needed to be converted. And the symbol of that would be their washing with water in the River Jordan by this man. Who was this man to do this? And so they send this delegation down to, we're told uh, at the end of the passage, down to Bethany where John was baptizing. Incidentally, it's very interesting that the first week in Jesus' ministry begins in Bethany, and the last week in Jesus' ministry begins in Bethany. It's another little indication to us that John is saying to us, we're looking here at the beginning and the end, and there's a consistency that runs all the way through. But the really interesting thing in this context to me is this. Um, Jesus is absent on the first day. I mean, John makes it very clear, I think, I'm speaking about the first week in Jesus' public ministry. Next day, next day, next day, and another day, and so on. This is a week in Jesus' public ministry. And that makes me think there's a subtle message in the fact that Jesus isn't present on the first day. Or at least he's not present to those to whom John the Baptist is preaching. Remember how he says, did you notice this in the reading? There is someone who is actually present that you haven't recognized. And my suspicion is that what John the Gospel writer is telling us here is actually this is how it always is in Christian witness. The first day of Jesus' ministry in someone's life is ordinarily a day when as far as they are concerned Jesus is completely absent. And the way in which Jesus becomes present 
is through the conduit of the witness that Jesus himself sends to them. You can understand why the Pharisees are so upset. Um, Those of us who have preached in all kinds of churches can remember with some pain as young men uh, having people shake our hands at the door and almost spit at us because we seem to treat them as though they might need to be converted or to be demeaned by a, you're obviously a very enthusiastic young man. I remember preaching in a situation where the next day I went up in an elevator and two ladies were present in the elevator, one of whom had heard me preach the night before, the other had been absent, and they began to talk about the young man who had been preaching the night before. And one said to another, what was he preaching on? She said he was preaching on repentance. She said, oh, on repentance? Yes, said the other lady. He didn't seem to realize the poor young man. We're far too old to repent. And you see, this is the kind of thing. This is exactly the kind of thing that John the Baptist is experiencing. People who had received the covenant of God, which in its very nature summoned those who received it to lives of full repentance and abandoned faith, insulted because John the Baptist was summoning them back to the word of God. And you can understand the outrage. The deputation comes and asks him who he is. I think perhaps the word we could use to describe what's happening here is the word deposition, which if you look up the dictionary, which is in your brain, you know has meaning A and meaning B. Meaning A essentially means get rid of somebody, depose them. The way the uh, parliamentary forces deposed Charles I and tried him in a room that many of you would have seen recently on television, deposed him, get rid of him. And the whole spirit of this is go down there and get rid of him. And that's the spirit. You, who do you think you are? Get down. Get out of our hair. Get out of the way. You have no right to be here. Who do you think you are? But there's another sense of depose or deposition. I I don't hear it much in the legal world in Scotland. You hear it a lot in the United States. A congregation I was in in South Carolina was full of lawyers. And some of them were always flying off here and there, they would say, to take depositions. So they would get some poor soul into a room and hour after hour after hour, under oath, they would grill them. And what they were doing out of the court was really for the service of the court to make its judgment. And that's what's happening here. All these questions... Um, I mean, you've all watched American law programs on television. Mr. John the Baptist, answer the question. Yes or no? Answer the question. Answer the question. And there's this whole series of questions. And John stymies them at the beginning. He says, okay, 
Point number one, I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ. Well, if you're not the Christ, tell us who you are. And so they ask their own questions. And their first question is, are you Elijah? Now, for some of us, that may seem very strange. But if you flip back to the very last chapter of the Old Testament, it ends with a promise that God before the Messiah comes, will send Elijah. And there was an expectation among the people, just like their false expectation of a political Messiah, there was an expectation that that promise meant that Elijah, who had gone to heaven in his fiery chariot, would come back from heaven in his fiery chariot, and he would sort things out. And John says, I am not that Elijah. I'm not that Elijah. Of course, Jesus says, well, in another sense, he was Elijah. Wasn't he preparing the way of the Lord? Well, if you're not Elijah, you can feel the frustration. If you're not Elijah, are you the prophet? If it were you and you were like a cheeky Glasgow boy, you would say, well, which prophet are you talking about? They all knew which prophet he was talking about. Moses had promised that God would raise up a prophet like him who would speak the word of God with full and final authority. It's actually a reference, really, to our Lord Jesus. And John the Baptist says, no, I'm not. I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. Then for pity's sake, tell us who you are. Well, he says, if you really want to know, I'm just a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. A voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And they they must have recognized the verses he was referring to. Um, Beginning of Isaiah chapter 40. The the vision that Isaiah has that the Babylonian captivity into which his people are going to be thrown will by God through King Cyrus be brought to an end and therefore they should prepare the way for the Lord. They should should not only seek deliverance from their bondage in Babylon, but they should seek repentance and faith with respect to the sin that had actually put them in Babylon in exile in the first place. But you see, John also must have seen something else and something I think he he may well have struggled with in later life. And that was that Isaiah had seen in the second half of his prophecy that that deliverance from bondage in Babylon was not the deliverance the people really needed. The deliverance from bondage in Babylon the people really needed was a spiritual deliverance from their bondage in sin and guilt and shame. And marvelously, you remember, he sees this figure coming out of the shadows in the second half of Isaiah in chapters 42 and 49 and 50 and 52 and 53, the most famous section that describes him as the one who would be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. And that's what 
John is really saying here. Do you want to know who I really am? Then who I really am is the one described in Isaiah 40, who was pointing forwards to the one described in Isaiah 42 and 49, in Isaiah 50 and 52 and 53, the servant, saviour, who would come to be the final deliverer. And if you ask me what I'm doing here, then listen to this. All these questions you're asking me, all of this in which I'm engaged is not about me. That was where they were so blind. Who are you? What do you think you're doing? Why are you doing this? Are you the Christ? Are you the prophet? Are you Elijah? Who are you? Tell us who you are. The people in Jerusalem need to know who you are. And he's really saying that's not really the question. The question that my life and my witness should be prompting in you, to which you are so tragically blind, is who is he? Who is this one who is present, whom we have failed to recognize? And he underlines it, doesn't he, when he says, I've I've just come to baptize with water. This one is someone so much greater than me. I am not really fit, he says, to take off his sandals. This is a world where that was a slave's task. This is a world where if someone was a disciple of another person, They would do everything for that other person except this most menial of deeds, take off their sandals and wash their dirty feet. And John is saying, this one is so great, so glorious, so magnificent, so gracious, that I am not even fit to do what a slave would do for his or her master. I'm not fit to do the most menial thing for this one. He is so great. He is so glorious. He is so full of love. And he is the one who has come to die, of course, on the cross for our sins. There's no comparison between us. Later on in chapter 3, John says a most beautiful thing about the Lord Jesus. He says, I'm, I'm just the, me- the best man in the wedding. Don't be looking at me. Looking at him. It is my joy to serve him. There's no comparison between this man who is the last and the greatest of the Old Testament prophets because He's standing on the mountain peak seeing Jesus actually come. And this man whom Jesus says is the greatest of them all says, I don't even begin to compare with him. Now there's something here I think we should notice as we try and draw these threads together to this picture that John is giving to us in this day before Jesus came. And that is, throughout this gospel, 
Jesus is presented as being on trial. And all kinds of witnesses are brought forward to speak about Jesus. And John is the first of those witnesses. He is the prototype witness to a Jesus who is constantly in this gospel on trial. And it's for that reason John the Baptist also serves us as being a prototype witness to Jesus who is on trial. And that is surely as true today in Aberdeen, in Scotland, in the United Kingdom, in the Western world, as it was in the days of his flesh. Jesus is on trial. Who is Jesus? What is Jesus like? And John the Baptist is, as I say, a kind of prototype example of the kind of witness God loves to raise up to point people to his son. And you see that in these marvelous ways that we've been considering. Um, You see it in the way in which John the Baptist makes absolutely clear that he is nothing and Christ is everything. And you see it in another way. You see it in these relentless questions that are asked of John the Baptist. Um, It's long struck me as being really interesting that in the evangelism books of the last 50 years, much has been made of Christians finding ways to get non-Christians to ask questions without realizing that's really a kind of self-condemnation of our lives, that there is nothing about our lives that would make people ask questions of us. Isn't that how the Apostle Peter puts it in 1 Peter 3.15 when he's speaking about being a witness? He says, Now always be ready to give a reason for the hope that's in you to those who ask you. And it is rather a striking fact that the New Testament has almost nothing to say about how to do witnessing and almost everything about how to be a witness that causes other people to ask the question, what makes you tick? Why are you so different? Why don't I understand you? Why are the things about you that irritate me? Why are the things about you that don't seem to belong to our set? And like John the Baptist, it's the great opportunity to say, Friend, it's not really about me. It's about him. And until you see him, follow him, you'll never understand me. I think one of the delights of being a minister at times when Christians go from this world into the next world and understanding that there are going to be sometimes large numbers of their friends who are not Christians there, who have never really understood them, I've found is to use a text in the funeral message that so clearly connects to the life of the person who has gone to glory 
that it's possible to say all the while you knew this person, you didn't really understand, did you? You often wondered, but you were too shy or whatever to ask them. Here's the reason. And sometimes people have said to me as they're dying in the, in the message, do not speak about me, speak about the Lord Jesus. And one has to find a way graciously of saying, dear one, it's not possible to speak about you without speaking about the Lord Jesus. And that's the need of the hour. Some of you know I lived most of my life in the United States, and I still sound this way. And I always used to love getting into conversations in elevators with Americans. And most Americans are not shy, but they don't like to embarrass you in the enclosed space of an elevator. So quite often, just as I was getting out of the elevator onto my floor, one of them would say, and where are you from? To which I love to say, Columbia, South Carolina, as the elevator doors closed, and I could see the looks of, surely not, surely not, on their faces. And, you know, I've often thought, isn't that how we are called to be witnesses. Lives that are so given over to the Lord Jesus, tasting his grace, knowing his fullness, catching glimpses of his glory that transforms our lives, our characters, our relationships with one another. Um, that people are going to say, I don't quite understand why you are the way you are. And our answer is bound to be the same answer as John the Baptist. Friend, it's not really about me. The explanation is Christ. The explanation is Christ. Makes you wonder what the disciples must have heard when Jesus said, you have to go into the world and be witnesses to me, to the ends of the earth without giving them a manual about how to do evangelism, but having shaped them into his likeness, tasting his fullness, seeing his glory, that would inevitably cause people to say, give me the explanation, give me the explanation. And you see, this is the day before he came, and it always is. And so our prayer is, as we speak of him because we've been asked to explain ourselves, our prayer is, Lord, make this the day before you come for them and bring them into your kingdom. Well, may God help us. That, that may be true of us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for its riches. Thank you for the Gospel of John. Thank you for John the Baptist, whom you sent as the forerunner of Jesus. And thank you chiefly for our Lord Jesus. Thank you for his glory. Thank you for his fullness. 
Thank you for his grace. Thank you that he is the explanation of what we have become. Help us to be more like him, we pray in his name. Amen.